Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hustlers of all varieties had seen the potential of drugs, the growing market for them, and the easy money that awaited anyone who got in on the game. It wasn't only the West Cork coastline that was being targeted by entrepreneurs of the new frontier, homegrown criminals who had come of age in an era of armed robberies and kidnappings, could see the potential to turn drugs' profits into millions. And many were already eyeing up cocaine as the fastest way of all to get rich. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. This is an extract from the new book Cocaine Cowboys, written and read by me, Nicola Talent. Chapter one, part one. The politician got to his feet in the dole. Jim O'Keefe represented Fina Gale in Cork Southwest. He knew his area well and he was worried. It was June 1993. Europe's internal borders were down and the Gardaí had just seized £5 million worth of cannabis that had washed up in bales along the Cork coast near Roscarbury, a picture-perfect tourist village on a shallow estuary surrounded with blue flag sandy beaches. Unfortunately, it is now very clear that the hundreds of miles of rugged coastline in West Cork have become a honeypot for drug smugglers, Deputy O'Keefe said. Just 12 months earlier, the then state solicitor for Cork, Barry Galvin, had caused consternation when he went on the popular Friday night chat show, The Late Late Show, and told the country that the West Cork coast was leaking like a sieve. Cannabis, he had said, was being brought ashore by the tonload and nothing was being done about it, suggesting that crackdowns in Britain and the Netherlands had meant that Ireland was the easiest entry point for drugs into Europe. What was more, Galvin had insisted, wealthy drug barons were living in splendour in the area and the Gardaí didn't have the resources to deal with them. Not long after his appearance, one of those residents, a Dutch man called Jan Hendrik Eipelaar, who owned stunning Glashnacree House overlooking Kenmare Bay, was arrested in the Netherlands. He was later convicted of leading an organised crime gang and distributing drugs, including heroin, ecstasy and hash. 
Eipeler had been a regular visitor to County Kerry from the late 1980s, maintaining a low profile while there. West Cork and parts of the County Kerry coastline, where the focus of much attention was being placed, had a long history of smuggling. And hundreds of years ago, locals would take their fishing boats out to meet larger boats carrying drink and tobacco from France or Spain. While the area had gone from a poor backwater to a desirable bohemian and multicultural Mecca, one thing that hadn't changed over the centuries was that when darkness fell, it was almost impossible to track an approaching yacht. While Galvin's comments had been dismissed by politicians and Gardee, customs were listening and they had announced a new drugs task force with special powers, made up of 74 members, half of whom had been allocated to Cork. They had also been given another inflatable dinghy to patrol the vast area, doubling the fleet from one to two. Cannabis smugglers, mostly coming from Europe and North Africa, had been using the coastline since the late 1980s, when authorities started to find large supplies of the drug on boats, in camper vans and even chucked overboard in waterproof wrappings. In the early 1990s, officials believed that cannabis made up almost 75% of the illegal drugs market. At that time, the mathematical equation measuring what was being nabbed versus what was getting in suggested that Ireland was simply high as a kite. But of course, much of the drugs were destined for the UK. While smugglers and Gardaí were pitted against one another in a game of cat and mouse on the high seas, it was largely accepted by both sides of the divide that once a load was landed, it had a pretty good chance of making it to its onward destination. What probably should have been more concerning, yet was missed in the hype of the cannabis hulls, was an incident in 1989 when a ship in a deep water berth at Ringeskiddy was discovered with a cargo of one million pounds of cocaine on board. The South Americans had been eyeing up the European market for years and had established a strong network of buyers and distributors in the UK and the Netherlands. To get their product to them, the South Americans had simply drawn a straight line northeast from the Caribbean coasts of Colombia and Venezuela to the shores of Spain and Ireland. But despite the early warning signs of the blizzard of cocaine that would follow, it was the larger cannabis hulls that continued to hold the attention of many and made the headlines. Bulky and easy to find, hulls were regularly discovered bobbing in the high seas, washed up on shorelines or found in specially modified boats. At Court McSherry in 1991, Over £7 million worth of cannabis created shockwaves when it came fast on the heels of a £1 million seizure the month before. The question that needs to be addressed is how many of these shipments have got through, Jim O'Keefe TD told the Dáil in 1993, citing one example he said he knew of relating to a landing on Skull that was never traced. Cleverly, he recognised the threat from the other side of the Atlantic and the possibility of the European Union needing to put its might behind resources in West Cork. There's also some evidence that because the United States is more successful in disrupting South American drug supply routes, that drug producers are turning their attention to the European market. West Cork is, of course, right on the shipping line between Europe and the Americas and is particularly vulnerable as a possible access for drug traffickers to the UK and mainland Europe. 
adequate manpower would be needed, he stated, to police such an enormous stretch of coastline, in particular as the lighthouses, including the old head of Kinsale, Galley Head, Fastnet Rock and Mizzenhead, had become automated, meaning the eyes and ears of humans, once the keepers of the shorelines were no longer at sea. We need to make available to the guard of modern gears, which is as good as, if not better, than anything available to the drug smugglers. I'm talking about high-powered binoculars, night sight equipment, infrared cameras and scrambler radios, O'Keefe said, while urging that the Navy and the Air Corps with their ships, helicopters and planes needed to be on hand for surveillance. He finally asked the public to come together in an army against the drug smugglers who could watch and report any suspicious activity on the coastlines and combat this growing evil. While it may seem quaint now to consider fighting what would become a tsunami of cocaine from South America with binoculars and four lighthouse keepers, the people of West Cork were acutely aware that they were in the eye of the storm. O'Keefe's party colleague, PJ Sheehan, called for European Commission funding for a Coast Watch service that would serve all of Europe. But the then Minister for Justice, Maura Gagan Quinn, was quick to dismiss the drama, saying that Cork was well served by the 17 officers that made up the drug squad based at Anglesey Street, and that she had been assured that Ireland was not a major importation route for drugs, but that most of what was discovered was for home consumption instead. The minister had just weeks earlier attended a meeting in Copenhagen and together with the 11 other European Commission ministers signed an agreement to enable the first phase of the establishment of Europol. With the border controls gone, the member states were on their way to creating the Europol Drugs Unit to combat the international trafficking of drugs. In Ireland, drug enforcement was the remit of the Garda National Drug Administration Office up and running for three years, and the recently established Customs National Drugs Team, with a focus on intelligence gathering and maritime-based activity at entry points, including Cork. Months later, O'Keefe was back on his feet, with news that another seizure in Kinsale was valued at £3 million, and that with over £30 million worth of drugs seized in Ireland in less than a year, records were set to be broken. An emergency drugs plan has to be formulated by the government to stem the tide, so to speak, in this area, he said. With 1,970 miles of coastline covered with coves and inlets to police, Garda numbers were critically low and a halt on recruitment in the Defence Forces and the Navy meant that they too were restricted with resources. While the Garda Siakona had vast experience dealing with terrorism, it had limited experience with drugs and only a small group of officers had gone undercover in Dublin to buy heroin off dealers. Like a slow spread, hustlers of all varieties had seen the potential of drugs, the growing market for them and the easy money that awaited anyone who got in on the game. It wasn't only the West Cork coastline that was being targeted by entrepreneurs of the new frontier. Homegrown criminals who had come of age in an era of armed robberies and kidnappings could see the potential to turn drugs profits into millions. And many were already eyeing up cocaine as the fastest way of all to get rich. Some were already trying to establish their own routes directly from Miami and Florida, which lay at the heart of the action and where almost three quarters of Colombia's finest started out. Eamon Kelly, 
had emerged as a criminal from Dublin's north inner city in the 1960s when he began his career with burglary. On the Garda radar since he was a teenage tearaway, he had joined the IRA and stayed with the official old school faction when it split with the provos in 1970. His links to the paramilitaries gave him an extra edge in Dublin, along with access to firearms, and he quickly became a ruthless criminal with a fearsome reputation for violence. He was clever too, and from an early stage in his career, he used a company as a front for his activities. Kelly was a formidable force and someone not to be crossed. Outside the old Workers' Party Club on Gardner Street in 1984, it was said that a simple political debate had got heated, but angered Kelly enough to knife his 21-year-old rival almost to death. He was convicted and got a 10-year sentence for the attack, the first lengthy term behind bars he would receive. Kelly was a complex character and held all the anger and rage of the old school IRA against the rule of law and social injustice. He challenged the justice system that had taken him away from his family and he managed to have a retrial ordered, this time being found guilty for assault and landing a far lesser three-year sentence. Although only in his mid-thirties, Kelly had a head for business, planning and how to wash dirty money through the legitimate system. He found himself advising other criminals, including the likes of Jerry the Monk Hutch, who looked up to the older criminal and followed his migration from the north inner city to the suburbs, where each would rear their families. Out of prison, Kelly was adamant of one thing, that he wasn't going to mess up again and find himself back behind bars. While armed robberies were risky, he'd a few contemporaries who were making a pretty penny on cocaine and he too believed that the white powder, with a far better reputation than heroin, was going to set him on a path to riches. For most of the 1980s, heroin had been seeping into underprivileged neighbourhoods across the city like a cancer infecting a generation of willing users and turning them into the walking dead. Communities had turned on the dealers and joined forces under the umbrella of the Concerned Parents Against Drugs, a grassroots movement that had begun as a working class response to the drugs problem, to the spread of HIV and to the deaths of teenagers and young adults in huge numbers. It had begun in the Hardwick Street Flats complex, an area which would later become a stronghold of the Kinahan organised crime group and quickly spread across the city into other social housing complexes. Marches were organised on the homes of the big drug dealers, such as Tony King Scum Filoni and Thomas the Boxer Mullen. The ensuing mob rule that came when the Republicans muscled in meant a huge amount of focus and Garda attention was on heroin jailing characters like Larry Dunn, nicknamed Flash Larry, and his brother Mickey Dazzler Dunn, who'd got rich and wore a swagger as they lived it up on the proceeds of their crimes, became the top priority for cops. Then there was the colourful Martin the General Cahill, who had robbed gold and diamonds, priceless art, and placed a bomb under the car of the chief forensic scientist James O'Donovan. His activities and his attitude had embarrassed the state so much that a special task force nicknamed the Tango Squad had been placed on him and his gang on a permanent basis. Eamon Kelly liked the look of cocaine. It didn't carry with it the same negative connotations around health and misery as heroin did. Instead, it was the epitome of cool and was being used by the beautiful, the famous and the rich. 
The classic film Scarface only served to increase its popularity despite the plot and the violence. Starring Al Pacino as the ruthless gangster Tony Montana, who launders millions in cocaine money and ultimately loses his mind as he hoovers up his own supply, the movie would become a cult classic. As Kelly was tempted to dip a toe in the market, Ireland was slowly shaking off the chains of poverty of its past, and nightclubs, restaurants and wine bars were now populated by the movers and shakers of Irish society. The Berkeley Court Hotel in Leafy Balls Bridge, Whites on the Green and the Mirabeau Restaurant in Dunleary were all popular with a rich and powerful set who drank expensive wines and partied into the night. Kelly reasoned he'd have a solid customer base and a network of contacts, including an Irishman living on Miami Beach called John Francis Conlon. Conlon appeared to know all the right people and introduced Kelly to dealers selling high-quality cocaine for a steal at $20,000 per kilo, enough to make around £500,000 when cut and bulked up and sold back in Ireland. While Miami might have been a playground for the rich, it was also a place of grinding poverty for immigrants, struggling to get a starring part in the American dream. So there was no shortage of those willing to mule the drugs to destinations for a few thousand dollars. Kelly was an unlucky cocaine cowboy in many ways. Rumours would later abound that Conlon was double jobbing for the DEA in a bid to penetrate the network of Pablo Escobar, having made contacts in American politics from an earlier career as an arms dealer. Kelly also didn't know that the Gardaí had been tipped off that the Provo was attempting to develop a new cocaine route into Ireland through direct contact with the cartels. On September 3rd, 1992, Conlon arrived at Dublin Airport on a flight from Miami, along with an overweight Cuban woman. They parted company and he made his way out to the arrivals hall alone, while she took a taxi to the city centre. In a classic Quentin Tarantino-style cluster, undercover Gardee had been tailing Kelly for hours, unaware he was meeting a man with serious connections in secretive US law enforcement, but knowing a deal was about to go down. The serious crime squad had watched Kelly park and make his way to the arrivals lounge, where he made eye contact with Conlon before they walked out separately and got into a Renault. Kelly drove the car, with Conlon in the passenger seat, and first they went to Kelly's home in Furry Park in Colester, before they hit the road again, driving around various parts of Dublin, until Conlon got out and went into a bank near Pembroke Road. Subsequent inquiries would reveal that he withdrew £2,000 in cash while Kelly waited outside. Back in the car, the pair drove immediately to Jury's Hotel in Ballsbridge, where Kelly parked and Conlon again got out. He went inside the hotel and returned with the bag, which both men examined before they placed it in the boot. They were eventually stopped at the Eastlink toll bridge and both were arrested and taken into custody. The bag, containing a white powder, was sent for technical examination, but officers knew it was cocaine. Other evidence collected included a piece of paper under the driver's seat with details of flights from Miami to Dublin on it. A second piece of paper that fell out of Conlon's shirt contained the name of the Cuban woman, Elizabeth Yamanoha, who'd accompanied him on the flight and who had just been picked up by officers at the hotel. A search of her room would unearth more evidence linking the three to a plot to import cocaine, 
including a banknote band with £2,000 written on the adhesive tape and a jumper she wore on the flight, which covered the cocaine she hid in folds of skin to avoid detection. The sting was a huge success for the then inspector Martin Callanan, who would later become the commissioner of Angarda Siakona, and his team, who had a fleet specially modified as secret surveillance vans. While the operation had been expensive, it was a success and Kelly was a big prize given his background in the IRA and his advisory role to younger, ambitious criminals. From the moment he was caught, Kelly denied point blank that he had anything to do with the drugs and told officers that he had simply been asked to pick up Conlon by a friend called James Byrne. He said Conlon had told him the bag contained money for a friend of Jim Byrne. While Kelly was more comfortable mixing with paramilitaries, armed robbers and streetwise criminals, James Danger Byrne, a former Roscommon football star, preferred to associate with celebrities and high-rolling Londoners living a champagne lifestyle of limos, cocaine and fast women. Larger than life, loud, gregarious and popular, Byrne enjoyed a flutter and had a habit of going through money like water. A privileged start to life had changed course when he dropped out of dentistry college and headed to London to earn his fortune instead. There he made friends with rich and fun-loving socialites and rubbed shoulders with some dangerous criminals who liked his personality and his head for their kind of business. His reputation as a popular sports star back home had suffered a hammer blow when he was arrested and sentenced for defrauding a Jersey bank out of 353 gold Krugerrand coins, worth the equivalent of more than €100,000. He'd gone to jail, but when he got out, he came straight back to Ireland and set up a series of companies before embarking on a major fraud against the Norwegian government involving dried fish. Byrne's scam had gone so far that, by the time he was found out, Norway was down millions, but he simply went bankrupt and retreated to the shadows. As far as the Gardaí were concerned, Byrne was off their radar, out of sight, out of mind. Whether Kelly was naming him and breaking the criminal code of Omerta as part of a grudge against him or in a desperate bid to convince his overlords in the IRA that he'd nothing to do with drugs was irrelevant. They had their evidence and they were going to trial without any complications. Kelly and Yamanoha were remanded in custody without bail, but Conlon on a second attempt, won his freedom pending trial after a 140,000 bail bond was paid. Although he'd had to surrender his passport, he'd managed to get his hands on a British one and flew back to Miami, later ringing the Gardaí to apologise for having absconded. It later emerged that Conlon was a suspected DEA tout who'd been monitoring Escobar's ambitions to push his product into Europe while playing the role of a fixer for new customers from across the Atlantic. Kelly remained in custody, vehemently pleading not guilty and feeling foolish and furious that he was left to face the music with his Cuban mule. During his trial, the court heard that detailed forensic tests had been carried out on adhesive tapes and the jumper worn by Yamanoha, who worked in the service industry in Miami. Dr. Sheila Willis, a forensic scientist, told the trial that samples of the tape found in the bin in the hotel room matched fibres on the green jumper. At one point, the judge, jury and legal counsel all visited the hotel and saw for themselves where the Garda surveillance van had been placed in the car park 
and heard how undercover officers had watched Kelly and Conlon as they handled the plastic bag containing the cocaine. A car, similar to the one which Kelly had been driving, was even placed where the court heard he had parked. Despite his protestations of innocence, Kelly was found guilty and given a 14-year sentence, with his co-accused Yamanoha receiving eight, although she would later be freed on appeal. Between his conviction and sentence hearing, the Irish Times had published several articles which not only covered the evidence given at the trial, but also Kelly's background and his deep links with republicanism and organised crime. In the newspaper, journalist Paul O'Neill, who would go on to become the Irish Times editor, had focused on one of the unanswered questions of the trial, namely why the Gardaí were watching Kelly in the first place. O'Neill, through a series of sources, had been able to put together a profile of Kelly as a violent criminal involved in fraud and drug smuggling, who was closely associated with leading criminal figures in Dublin. Kelly, ever the agitator, described the article as malicious and pernicious lies, and he complained to the Court of Criminal Appeal, where he argued that two articles published had been prejudicial and that the trial judge should have acceded to applications to discharge the jury as a result. The Late Late Show, where the trial had also been discussed, was also cited for straying into illegal commentary. The ruling went somewhat in Kelly's favour, but instead of throwing out the case as requested, the Court of Criminal Appeal simply ordered a new one. Kelly went back to the High Court asking it to stop the second trial, claiming he could not get a fair hearing because of the publicity surrounding the case, but that didn't work and he found himself back in the dock. After the second trial, Kelly was again found guilty and later sentenced to the same 14 years, but his legal agitation would govern trial reporting by the media for years to come. During the trial, Detective Sergeant John Fitzpatrick of the Garda Drug Squad had told Mr Peter Charlton, prosecuting, that cocaine was widely used in Ireland by more affluent sections of society. It was generally sold, he said, with a purity of between 25 and 30 percent. But the cocaine in the possession of Kelly and others had an 85 percent purity and would therefore be bulked and mixed once it arrived safely. Going on that ratio, Gardy had estimated the drugs found in Kelly's possession were worth about £500,000, an indication of the profits that could be made and the quality that customers were prepared to buy. Kelly settled down to life behind bars in Portleash Prison, where he befriended the terrorist Desi O'Hare. But he continued to argue to have the cocaine wrap lifted, repeatedly asking judges to overturn his conviction. In 1996, three years after he was first sentenced, the Court of Criminal Appeal dismissed his second legal challenge, centred on allegations that the former head of the City of London CID and Fraud Squad, then Commissioner Thomas Dickinson, had given information to the Gardaí after Kelly's arrest, which would have been essential to his defence. His claims that he'd been the victim of a miscarriage of justice due to John Conlon's role in the conspiracy fell on deaf ears and he had to accept that he was going to have to do his porridge, after all. Around the same time Eamon Kelly was dabbling in the cocaine market, another Irishman had even higher ambitions for himself as a cocaine cowboy and a direct route between the South American cartels and the coastlines of the UK and Ireland. Businessman Brian Wright was convinced that it was literally going to be plain sailing to get his product 
from the Caribbean to the UK once he could get an introduction to the suppliers. His chance came when he met with a Brazilian called Rani Suarez, who had a direct line into the cartels in Bogota and Medellin. And just like that, his massive cocaine operation got underway. A professional gambler who'd grown up in Cork, Wright had moved to the Kilburn area of England along with his 11 siblings, who were all reared in grinding poverty, instilling in him an insatiable appetite for money and a fearless demeanour. He'd started out as a small-time gambler, but he'd become so flash that by the time he was transporting cocaine, he already had a box at Ascot where he was bribing jockeys and running rings around the authorities. Just like his heroes, the Cray twins, Wright courted celebrity, and one of his closest friends was the comedian Jim Davidson, who would give evidence at his trial. Authorities in the UK had no idea how big Wright had got until bad luck and a freak storm would combine to begin the unravelling of his carefully constructed empire, which was based on a delivery round so guaranteed that he earned himself the nickname The Milkman. Likewise, Gardaí in Ireland had no idea of the enormity of what they would uncover when a yacht called the Sea Mist was forced to dock at Cove on a stormy night in October 1996. The boat had been caught in the bad weather and needed shelter, but when it arrived, the skipper and another crewman on board behaved so suspiciously that fishermen and locals were alarmed enough to call the Gardaí. They boarded the vessel and discovered that it had been specially modified to hide almost six million pounds worth of cocaine. Brian Wright was immediately suspected of being the bigwig behind it. He was already on the radar of the US and UK authorities who were jointly monitoring his involvement and friendly relationships with Colombian cartels and together they were sitting back waiting for the right moment to pounce. In August 1996, just one month before Seamist veered off her course for England, his son, Brian Wright Jr., had been spotted and documented in intelligence files as having been in the Caribbean. While officers were monitoring his activities, they had no idea just how big a player Wright Sr. had become. The Seamist didn't have its flag raised as it realised it wasn't going to make it past the southeast coast of Ireland towards Dover. And the fisherman who had guided her became suspicious when the two crewmen appeared more panicked than grateful as they were directed to safety. Initially, there was confusion over the amount of cocaine on board the yacht and its purity. But as officers started to dismantle the interior of the boat, they uncovered more and more cocaine. The Gardaí began with estimates of about £40 million, but one tabloid hit the highest end of the scale when it coupled a dusky Venezuelan beauty as being one of five arrested with a record £500 million worth of cocaine. The dusky beauty was a 19-year-old who would later be acquitted of any involvement in the importation of illegal drugs. Four men were also brought to court. Graham Howard Miller, then 47, from Cumbria in England. The skipper, Gordon Richards, from Brighton. James Knoll, 51, and Roman Smollen, who was 50 and from the honeymoon island of St. Lucia. Within days of the chance discovery, the group appeared at a special sitting of Cork District Court following what was described as Europe's biggest ever cocaine seizure on board the Norwegian-registered converted cruiser. Superintendent Kieran McGann opposed bail for all five due to the seriousness of the charges. 
the amount of drugs said to be involved and because he believed the defendants would not stand trial if released. All were remanded in custody and a two-year-old child was placed with foster parents under the care of the Southeastern Health Board as the Irish authorities faced a decision on whether to keep him in Ireland or return him to relatives in South America. While the seizure had been a coup in terms of size, scale and headlines, many of those nabbed were pawns and totally dispensable to the ambitious right who had funded the voyage. However, among the bits of intelligence found through documents, phone records and from statements was information that a yacht called the Selina was due to rendezvous with the sea mist off the UK's Dorset coast near Poole. The information would provide a breakthrough that would allow UK police to dig deep into the right network and set up a proper plan to take down the cocaine giant and jail him and his lieutenants for a long time. Back home, Irish police weren't in a celebratory mood, despite the massive seizure and the international kudos that had come with it. Just months before the storm forced the Seamus to dock in Cork, the murder of journalist Veronica Geeran had brought politicians and police chiefs out in force with promises to crack down on organised crime. Geeran had been driving her car back to Dublin from a court appearance when she was shot dead by a gang led by the cannabis kingpin John Gilligan. The crackdown that followed had scattered Gilligan's gang and had seen new legislation brought in to allow Gardaí hold suspected drug traffickers for up to seven days. More importantly, the outcry had seen draconian proceeds of crime legislation speed through the Houses of Parliament at an unprecedented rate, which facilitated the setup of the Criminal Assets Bureau, CAB, with the remit to go after the money. While some senior criminals had fled Ireland, any who had invested their ill-gotten gains openly in property were vulnerable, with the onus of proof on the target of CAB investigations to prove their innocence as opposed to the other way around. The Bureau had a long list of those it intended to look at, but first up, were a slew of serious organised crime figures from both the UK and the Netherlands who'd moved to Ireland during the early 1990s to run their illicit operations. They were the ones that Barry Galvin was referring to when he complained on The Late Late Show about crime lords living it up in rural Ireland. Now at the helm of the new bureau as its chief legal officer, Galvin was intent that the blow-ins were about to start to feel rather unwelcome. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary.